If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us on a state sale. I am Lori Lattimore Volkman. I'm Brad Rayleigh. Today, we are going to talk about the Southern strategy, both the original one that was far more nuanced but no less divisive, as well as Trump's iteration that he rolled out this past weekend in full force. I have never really cared for the 4th of July, and this year, of course, it's just ridiculous. I mean, give me a fucking break. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, instead of celebrating American independence from tyranny nearly 250 years ago, he basically tried to make Americans afraid of other Americans. But not just any Americans. No. No, you must fear those far-left fascists who want to bring true justice and equality for people of color, who want to have health care for all Americans, who believe in the First Amendment and want the government to be a helping hand in ending the coronavirus rather than just a stumbling block. So, yeah, you know, don't trust those guys. Yeah. The, The projections here are not good, right? A Gallup poll this week has found that Trump's approval rating is dropping among independents, white voters, and men. And apparently some Republican senators, but we won't hold our breath on that just yet. Putting the the 4th of July Klan rallies in, in perspective, the Southern strategy was the most successful political recurring kind of uh, political strategy in American history and everybody's sort of looking around assuming that it would work again and sort of dreading him kind of going back to that well you know we're seeing him still lose ground among non-college educated whites which is that's his base right Um, right. and that the fact that they're saying it's about his response to race and what we're hearing from at least reports is that Republican senators are talking to the White House saying, give us a different message to run on. And they're being told by uh, senior advisors that Trump's in charge. He's the campaign advisor and he's running on his instinct. And his instinct is, is that this silent majority of racist assholes <laughs> is going to turn out or are going to turn out in the fall and surprise everybody. And that's what he has to double down on. Before we go back and revisit this debacle that has white nationalist and top Trump advisor Stephen Miller's name written all over it, as well as an obvious total misunderstanding of the word fascist, let's just highlight exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the Southern strategy. A real quick summary back to the Civil War, because this is the part where um, conservatives point to this and they get part of it right. Let me just put it that way. Uh, (laughs) One of the things I wanted to point out, and this is something I tell my classes all the time, when people talk about Republican equal conservative and Democrat equals liberal, those words are are modern usage only. And that in the 19th century, they have very little meaning. You know, there isn't the same culture war. There's not the same kind of things. And liberal, every American is a liberal in the 19th century because they believe in private property and they believe in having a democracy. So, all right. So that's one of the problems but the republicans of course are the party in 1865 that are the party that's opposed to to slavery at least in some form what people often forget is that lincoln when he took office in 1860 promised the south that he wasn't there to take away slavery he just wanted to stop it from expanding 
slave owners had been trying to expand into the Caribbean, into Central America, and they certainly wanted to expand into the American West. And, and Lincoln didn't want that because the Republican Party stood for, as Eric Foner put it, free soil, free labor, free men. So, But the thing that I think people miss about the Civil War is that Northerners were not that adamantly anti-slavery. They were anti-Southern. Only a small part of the Republican Party who really were concerned about the plight of the slaves and then the freedmen. And they were called radical Republicans in the time. And I always, every time I introduce that to a class, I say that means something completely different now. I mean, one of the things that, that I, I do like to point out is that Northerners were very complicit in the pre-Civil War period to slavery right. because their big money was coming on textiles and they were reliant on that cheap cotton coming out of the South. Right. So they didn't want that to expand and, and, and have competition for farming and land use in the West or outside of the, uh, outside of the region. That said, there were people, there were a small number of even abolitionists, including the Quakers and others who were actually legitimately morally opposed to slavery, but they are a small number and abolitionists were run out of Boston, you know, uh, by an angry mob. I mean, so it isn't as if the North was coherently anti-slavery. I mean, they right. really weren't. And so this explains, I think, what happened. And so once we get to 1865, we've got this small group of Republicans called radicals who are the ones who are most dedicated to the freedmen. They're the ones who established the Freedmen's Bureau. They're the ones who are pushing for uh, suffrage for black males. And they're the ones who are, are most upset by Andrew Johnson's horrific response to the South. But they're a small group. And so the Republicans start to dislike Andrew Johnson and the Democrats. But a big portion of that, of those Republicans, even during Reconstruction, are looking elsewhere. They're looking at, at industrialization. They're looking at Western migration. They're not as focused on the South. And for some of those radical Republicans, by the time they got the 13th Amendment in 1865, and then a couple of years later, the 14th Amendment, some of them actually really just raised their hands in the victory salute and said, we accomplished what we were looking for and we're, we're done. We're, right. we're all good here. And so what happens, so, so the Republicans are not as anti-slavery as I think people today, even in the Lincoln Project, want to see them. Although Lincoln himself moves from 1860 to his right. death. I mean, he becomes far more uh, concerned about the, the lives of, of slaves and freedmen. But but these these radicals start to they're a minority to begin with. And once Andrew Johnson is out of office, um, they sort of slide out of the way. And so I always point out to my class, Reconstruction is technically 11 year period from 1865 to 1876. But it's already dying by 1871, 1870. Certainly 1873 is one of the biggest race massacres in, in Colfax, Louisiana. And by 1876, essentially, the North has washed its hands of the South, sort of like the, the modern day response to COVID. Well, we did everything we could. We're done here. <laughs> they turned over the South to, to Southern Democrats and to the Klan and to segregation and to Jim Crow. And so from 1876 to, I'm going to say, 1932, African-Americans essentially were without representation. And in the South, it was left up to local rule, which we know was Jim Crow and Plessy v. Ferguson and you know, all those things. Right. So that's the part the Republicans miss is that they actually threw African-Americans under the bus in 1876, abandoned them to to the Southern racists. So one of the things I also make the point, again, with that idea of conservative and liberal not being used correctly, in the 20th century, the most conservative people in America are Southern Democrats on every single issue. 
Um, so even during the New Deal, when Roosevelt is pushing for land reform and, and environmental protections and, of course, Social Security, the Southern Democrats make up what is referred to as a Southern veto, that as they're Democrats and they do vote with the president a lot of times, but if he tries to do anything on race, like address lynching or address uh, land reform for African-Americans, they step in and stop that immediately. And to the point that actually Social Security in the beginning um, actually did not cover most industries that African-Americans were heavily involved in. So if you were a farm worker or domestic worker or, you know, um, you you weren't didn't qualify for Social Security. And that was on purpose. That was the Southern that was that Southern uh, veto. But the other thing about this is that the Democratic Party, while it was the party of the South uh, up until the, the, the mid 1960s into the 1970s, it was also well established in American northern cities. And this goes back to the 19th century. So it wasn't just a party of slavery. It wasn't just the party of segregation. It was a party of immigrants. It was a party of workers. And then in the 30s, you started to add in Western farmers like my own grandfather, um, you added in intellectuals who became a part of the Democratic Party. And so that part of the Democratic Party started to grow. And they, out of that came more liberal kind of components. But even then, I would say probably in the in, outside of Roosevelt and a few of the people he was working with, there were there were liberal Republicans, you know, in the 1930s. That's something that's it's like um, impossible to imagine now. But <laughs> 1948, after Roosevelt had been stymied on a lot of these um Racial issues. In 1948, after he's uh, gone and Truman's president, he integrates the military. And that's like the last straw for a lot of these Southern Democrats. And that's where you get the rise. So this is the beginning of that Southern kind of realignment. Whenever Dinesh D'Souza goes off on his, you know, the party of the Democrats or the party of the Klan, I, I keep wanting to say, Strom Thurmond, he died as a Democrat, right? Oh, no, that's not right. <laughs> 1948 was that first kind of really visible split. And then, of course, with Brown v. Board in 1954 and 1955, you saw those Southerners actually band together in a conscious conspiracy to keep uh, uh, black kids out of public schools. And and Ron Sider even talked about this, you know, that you had communities that shut down public uh, pools rather than have them integrated or shut down the golf course rather than have it integrated. That is obviously roiling in the South. And then you get to 1964 and, and LBJ, with the Civil Rights Act, and then in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, then they start to move. Barry Goldwater is really the beginnings of the Southern strategy. He is the one who uses his, which he, I think, later felt bad about. But in 1964, <laughs> he essentially ran, at least a big part of it, was his appeal on uh, pointing out his filibustering of the Civil Rights Act. That was, that was his claim to fame. And he won, I think, something like five Southern states in 1964, which is about all he won. I mean, that was part of the problem. <laughs> to me, one of the tragedies is, you know, it's 1964. That's when Strom Thurmond goes. And the reason he switches and a lot of others don't is because the Republicans are willing to give him the same seniority that he had earned over those years. So others stay within the Democratic Party, but their successor becomes uh, Republican and they start to vote more with conservative uh, causes. But to me, the tragedy is that you had a lot of Northern Republicans who in 1968 could actually point back to 1964 and 1965 and say, we were part of that, that this was something we could be proud of. I think Nixon and a lot of the other conservatives, though, were looking at that electoral map and seeing no room to move on the left and their only way was to go right. So what they realized was that there was a lot of pent up anger in the South. But Nixon realized that there was a whole bunch of angry white 
Southerners who were nominally Democrats because they'd been Democrats since Reconstruction, um, but they were so angry at integration and the end of of segregation and they just and so he could tap into those and so that's the beginning of trying to appeal to those southern white racists and i'm sure many of them are very fine people <laughs> but but no, they they lived in their world and i get that I, I can give them a little bit of extension understanding they've grown up in an incredibly racist society and that's the only society they knew but that said nixon was able to appeal to them with law and order, with some of these other kinds of subtle kind of claims. And then you flash forward into the 80s and Reagan is really the master of that. Tapping into this idea of appealing to that Southern white anger at their loss of status. So it became subtle things, like I said, with Reagan going to Philadelphia, Mississippi and just talking about states' rights for the longest time anyway. Every Republican who ran for president had to go to South Carolina and uh, to the South and affirm that the Confederate flag was not racist and that it was about heritage, not hate. And I mean, John McCain did it. And then comes the uh, Supreme Court attack on the Voting Rights Act, 2015, Republican resistance to actually do anything to help them. And then comes Trump. And then comes Trump with his ride down the escalator talking about Mexicans uh, with his open appeal to white white Southerners to the point that David Duke celebrated his election. The Klan still endorses him. Uh, you know, speaking of David Duke, I've mentioned Derek Black before, David Duke's godson, who was primed to be the next heir of the white nationalist movement until he went to college and got some knowledge and was astute enough to recognize the heir of his racist ways. <laughs> but one of his unfortunate contributions prior to that was reminding their massive following not to use the triggered language. You know, don't say the N-word. Don't talk about lynching. Instead, talk about how black people prefer to separate themselves and live among their own. Talk about the crime rate among African Americans and talk about the incarceration rate and talk about the number of blacks who are poor or haven't done well in school. Essentially, cherry-pick the stats, ignore the systemic racism that has skewed most of those numbers, and play on the fear of white people that people of color are going to take away their jobs and their scholarships and ruin their neighborhoods, etc. What's interesting is now that they have their guy in the White House, now that they have a racist running the country, <laughs> we have seen how the country is turning more more racist, or at least it's becoming more obvious. And I don't know, I, it's hard to see how this plays out exactly, but it, it, it can't be good. I hope it works to Trump's disadvantage, but it, it also works to the country's disadvantage no matter what. That Southern strategy was so effective for so long. And now I think one of the things that, that Trump does to his detriment politically um, I mean, it's a detriment to all of us because it's a, an attack on our dignity, but he is so inarticulate about this and he is so lacking in subtlety. He's just openly hateful. I mean, he's now <laughs> out there just tweeting videos of uh, supposed crimes by black people on white people or, uh, you know, attacks on his statues. They're not really even employing the Southern strategy anymore. They're just like mm. outright racist. Yeah, because the, the Southern strategy at its at its heart was to reach out to disaffected Southerners. I mean, that that by by its name, people who felt um, 
and this is an important point, I think they were they were upset by forced busing, uh, taking white students and busing them into black uh, communities and vice versa for school that found integration to be uh, problematic. And this is, you know, 68 through or 64 forward. Um, now we're seeing a situation where I think that part simply doesn't resonate anymore. So it, it isn't, you know, obviously we haven't done busing in forever. Um, I don't think anybody is uh, upset the fact that there aren't whites only uh, drinking fountains. Um, and honestly, that I think was in the memory of a lot of those white Southerners who who responded to, to Nixon. And so now you're right. It's just it's 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 not even a Southern strategy. It's just a racist strategy. It's just saying, <laughs> right. I'm just going to double down on on the fact that there are a lot of people in my base who distrust people of color. One I just saw on Twitter this morning of a, of a woman in Denver um, haranguing this black man who was just walking through her neighborhood and she was caught on, yes. on video. It's like that woman a month ago who the guy who was birding in New York city mm -hmm. asked her to put her dog on the leash. And she felt like she could just say to him, right. You know, I don't have to, and I'm calling the police. And right there, he's filming her, and she still feels emboldened enough to say a complete lie. This black right. man is attacking me. And he's like, right. you keep going. I'm filming. And, of course, that whole debacle of retweeting a video with one of his supporters uh, shouting white power. The thing about that story that was amazing is it took him three hours to take it down. And they, they, the staffers were scrambling to get a hold of him to convince him. And it wasn't until your senator, Tim Scott, actually came out and said it was reprehensible that I think he was convinced to take it down. Otherwise, he thought this was a good appeal to his base. This is a strategy that has worked so well for so long that I, I can kind of understand how he just assumes it's just an automatic. What I heard yeah. more than the white power is the woman who is one of the protesters there. And she's like, fuck Trump, fuck Trump. It's like, <laughs> I love this lady, this old lady screaming at the people in the golf cart who are saying white power. <laughs> Like, yeah, like this, yeah. this woman's my spirit animal. The other part about that, of course, is say he didn't hear the white power thing. We can. But once he found out it was there, uh, it took three hours to take it down. And since then, there's been no denunciation of it. In fact, uh, his uh, press secretary came out and said that he posted it to show solidarity with his supporters. Totally emboldened attitude you know that arrogance that i can be racist and i'm cool and right. it's acceptable right. i think that's what really concerns me regardless of the election outcome and how this is going to play out for that joe biden wins in november Woohoo! democrats get the senate yay but we still have just so many racists feeling like they are have a right to act that way the division and the separation is going to hurt us for decades Again, I'm puzzled by my role as an optimist. I really am because I, <laughs> I, I have zero optimism. This white woman was haranguing a black family about landscaping and she wanted to know if they had a permit. And all of the white neighbors were out yelling at her. You know, that gives me a little bit of hope. The white people around them going, no. So, that, I mean, yeah. that's, that is the one thing that's hopeful. I think it still is good. so, no, right. It's still sowing so much division among Americans just because... Racism then goes back to not being okay doesn't mean racists just disappear. No, I think it is back to this subtle thing. One of the things that, that the Southern strategy was able to work and the subtlety worked because you had so many people who defined racism purely as an as a hostile 
right. conscious dislike of people of color. And so they, and since they didn't see themselves that way, they could, they could buy into the dog whistle of states rights or tradition or heritage or all that kind of stuff. And Trump ripping the mask off of that. You've got a lot of those people. I have to think who probably are pretty racist in their assumptions about stereotypes and everything else, but they're not consciously hostile to people of color and they see this conscious hostility and it makes them very uncomfortable. And at least I'm hoping, you know, we'll see what, if, whether those people are actually, you know, disheartened enough to not vote for Trump. You know, and that's what I think Joe Biden is essentially recognizing is get out of the way and let him just keep talking because he's going to, he's going to put his foot in it. Again and again. I know. And you said this, and then I saw a tweet who said the exact same thing, that he is this close to saying the N-word. <laughs> and even on Twitter, where you can edit yourself <laughs> for a second. I mean, the fact that he's, and make no mistake about it, he is a hardcore racist. Just as Troy was so convinced that he's a fascist in his political style. Any doubts that, that any of us had about his being a racist after the City Park Five, after very fine people, it's clear. I mean, he is far more concerned with Confederate monuments than he is uh, U.S. soldiers um, because <laughs> he thinks that the traitors who <laughs> fought against the Union are more American than, than actual servicemen serving in, in Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning. And I have to think even in some of the conservative military families, there are people just going what in the world again we're gonna have to find out in november but i think there's an awful lot of white southerners who wanted who supported those southern strategies because they didn't know they were they weren't consciously saying i'm voting this way because of race and and i i support that by saying i have yet to have a republican voter that i know and you and i know a lot of the same people in common <laughs> I've never had one of them actually even address the, so, the, the Southern strategy, even defend it or address it or acknowledge it. And I think what is because that they are, have this deep seated fear that they will have to acknowledge that they've been complicit in a really bad way in, in racism. And once you get to Trump, I mean, he's like I said, he's pulled the mask off of it. It's no longer a dog whistle. It's a, it's a foghorn. It's a, it's, you know, <laughs> know. it's a, because again, the polling shows white voters, many of them who voted for Trump in 2016, disapprove of his handling on race and these protests. And I'm, I find that stunning, uh, which gives me a little bit of hope, um, a little bit. I'm not going <laughs> to be too optimistic today, but I mean, it, it, it gives me a little bit of hope that there's something there. We might see, you know, an unraveling of that. The Southern strategy worked because it was subtle and Trump is anything but subtle. And it does seem to not have the impact that he'd like. I think there are two components there. One of them is just fatigue. I, I honestly think that, yes, the, the hardcore Confederate flag-waving Klan rally base find him invigorating. But I have to think that there's a whole bunch of, I'm not going to call them even middle. I'm just going to say they're conservative voters who have always voted conservative, and they are probably churchgoers. When it comes right down to it, you probably would want them as your neighbors. They're probably pretty decent people. They're going to follow the law. They're going to do things. And they voted for Trump because they thought he was going to try something different. And they hated Hillary for all the reasons that we could talk about. But I have to think that they're looking at this and just going, I'm just so exhausted. I'm so tired of waking up every day and finding out what he said. And, you know, and then you add in this kind of racial recognition that is, is definitely resonating in America. I mean, there's no doubt about that. 
this seems like a huge political miscalculation. I mean, obviously, we're still, you know, 120 days away from the election. So the visuals from Mount Rushmore, then you had Native Americans uh, protesting, being removed from their ancestral ground, uh, at least one of their ancestral grounds in the middle of all of this discussion on people of color. And you've got all these white people in, in American flags and Confederate shirts going to Mount Rushmore to cheer uh, the 4th of July. It just rings hollow. And it certainly it horrifies many of us. I mean, I keep reading even some of the Republican pollsters and Republican people are saying, you know, most people want to expand their base. And what he's doing right now he thinks is going to solidify his base, not necessarily expand it. Um, I don't know that it's even solidifying. I mean, it's solidifying, you know, that core racist part, but man. Right. And it's true that maybe his base isn't all as racist as he might think. It was a, and this is anecdotal, but this was like in a, a retirement community in Florida where, you know, somebody said, I mean, he was so excited to vote for Trump because he wanted a businessman in office. I don't understand that, but you know, whatever. Uh, so excited about that. And, but now three and a half years later, he's saying, this is ridiculous. This is, I'm not, I can't, I'm going to vote for Biden because this guy, he's incompetent. Um, <laughs> and said that, said the people around him. And I will add one other anecdotal story from a friend of mine who's a Republican who voted for Hillary in 2016 over his own objections. Yeah. Um, he works in the military industrial complex. Let me just put it that way. Um, so he's always been pretty conservative, but a moderate kind of guy. And he and I were texting yesterday and he said well i have to tell you uh most of my people at work also agree that he's a disaster and they're going to vote for biden again anecdotal and you know but yeah yeah the new york times this morning also had a reaction to all this specifically the southern strategy and trump trying to you know lean into his racist ideology david lionheart he is arguing you know that it's the southern strategy is failing and he has four reasons, and they've all, they're all reasons we've talked about mostly. And the first one is that the country is changing and that most people under 35 are more liberal than they are conservative. And so we have this whole group of, of energized voters who are really far left of Trump. And then the second reason, he says, is that people are afraid, even conservatives who might even be more afraid of a Democrat than any Republican in office are so worn out by Trump and so worried about the divisiveness that he creates day in and day out, and they do not want that to continue. The third reason was related to that is that Trump has just gone too far. The fact that he is doubling down in this divisive way over a topic that, as you've noted and we're seeing, is something that really a majority of Americans are not buying into, and he's still doing this in the midst of a pandemic that is getting worse. That's just not good leadership. And right. in the middle of a, a crisis, all he can think about is to be more divisive. Yeah. I think for some people, they just see that as, we got to get him out because that's, that's not doing anybody any good. No, I agree. And, and I think that many of those people are also still looking at some of the bottom line issues too. And still suggests that, that he's trusted by a few percentage points uh, on the economy, which just baffles me. I, I can't imagine that that continuing or certainly not increasing. You know, Fauci is saying we haven't finished the first wave. We're going in the wrong direction. All of those things are actually telling us 
that this is not going to get better uh, financially and economically, all those kinds of things that are kind of at the, the bottom line for a lot of people. Stock market is not the economy. Investors are not most of the people in this country. That's <laughs> like, right. The, the people with, with jobs worried about their bills and worried about their kids and worried about their mortgages, car payment. Right. Those people are the ones that should measure the economy. We're all kind of baffled. You know, we see the, the, the case count skyrocket and the, and the stock market responds favorably. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, it's ridiculous. All the economic kind of metrics that I think most economists look at are going in the wrong direction. Whatever the stock market says, I mean, uh, wages, unemployment, and we know unemployment is just a snapshot. Um, it doesn't even reflect the people who are out of work. And all, all Trump can do is talk about consumer confidence. What, what the fuck? <laughs> he is so out of touch. I, I go back to a couple of things. One of them is uh, that there's an awful lot of people who make their political decisions based on, on pure emotion. Um, some of them are true believers. They've dove in. They, they, read, they listen to Breitbart and, uh, and Tucker Carlson, and, and that's, that's where they get their news from. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of people who are just, they've always voted Republican. They always assume they're good um, and they're better than, than us evil Democrats. Um, and some of those people, I have to think, are just so fed up with Trump and just so fed up with just even even the, the prospect of having to defend it. Joe Biden's being totally reasonable and he's doing a marvelous job, by the way, of of using Trump's craziness to his advantage and coming back with a very quick short video and a and a quip on twitter that basically just says i won't be that guy i will not be that divisive and that insane i i absolutely agree with you that and for one thing even if we take these polls now as gospel they are a snapshot in time and things can change. Um, right. and so absolutely. But that's where I, I look at them as a snapshot in time. And what I'm comparing in some cases is apples and apples of people who in 2016 liked him. Where are they now? That kind of thing. And of right. course, there's a lot of them right. who are all in. My thing about the polls, and it, it's honestly, it's not even legit, is the same way I feel about sports, right? That when we're winning, I get nervous. And I want the game to just end right then. Like right now, I feel like progressives will, will possibly slack off or start to feel confident or start to right. feel like we've got this. Right. And meanwhile, the conservatives, and especially that, that GOP machine, will go into high gear to yeah. really ramp up the, the lies and the disinformation I hate the polls because I think it manipulates behavior rather than just being rather than only being a snapshot of what people are thinking at the time. I, I agree with you completely. I will say in our favor in 2016, there were still a lot of people saying Trump not that bad. And now I think for so many people, especially marginalized people, there's so much more kind of visible horror of what they're seeing. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm hopeful in that way. But I'm again, like you, I, I in fact, that's reminding me there's some people like uh, Jamie Harrison, I need to send some money to and um, <laughs> this time around, all those voters have to be confronted with them being okay with who he is. There is no mystery. He has even made that easier in the last three months because we know he only cares about himself. He doesn't give a 
frick about anybody's health care, but he's been motivated by his personal profit and needing the economy open and needing businesses open right. so he can make money. So that takes precedence over all those voters. Progressives better be getting these ads ready because he is just making it so easy. In 2016, just about the only thing they, that was really out there was that he was a womanizer and he wasn't really as financially profitable as he'd like to say. I think there are enough reporters and enough journalists and enough news consumers who will not allow him to, to completely dominate how the news is framed. Right. We have so many things on record now. Trump is, I think, really is a little bummed over all this that, that, that of his talk about how much he hated Biden and everything else. I, I think he really wanted to be able to run against uh, Elizabeth Warren or a person of color because his his playbook, so much of it doesn't work on Biden, not because Biden is some great person or anything like that, just because he's a white male. Yeah, it, it just doesn't it doesn't seem to work. And so uh, Trump, I think, is is struggling. And he from what we read, he's screaming at his campaign staff because he's pissed off that he's not doing better. You're right. He can't get people afraid of a woman president. He can't get people afraid of a, of a president of color. So they're not afraid of an old white guy, clearly. Calling Joe Biden a socialist is something I have to think a lot of voters are like, what? You know, Bernie, they could buy that because Bernie calls himself a socialist, even though he means something different than what they are thinking. But with Joe. And that's um, exactly man. what he tried to do Friday and Saturday night. You know, Joe Biden is going to bring a far left fascism to the White House. <laughs> I thought of Troy's comment about fascism being the ultimate uh, conversation stopper. And I thought that's exactly, I mean, here's, here's Trump right. using a term completely incorrectly, just, just to call people names essentially on the far left. And because he knows truly most Americans, but certainly his base, they're not going to know the real difference. Fascism is yeah. bad in their minds. So yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As much as I want actual progressive policies, and I know you do too, and in this case, I'm looking at the world that is, I always really liked Obama because Obama was always so pragmatic. But his pragmatism of what is possible is something I, you know, I admire in politics. I admire that in, in terms of people, you know, Saying, okay, yeah, we'd like to get there, but let's get to where we can. Let's what what is what is doable. So right, right. I hope that one of the things that comes out of this is the recognition that Democrats and progressives have been lazy on a lot of things going back years. Now, I have voted in every election I've been able to vote in. I think for for decades, uh, but I'm not so sure that I was interested in paying attention to state politics or local politics and state politics has been where Republican activists have been incredibly effective at. And that's where the gerrymandering, they've been able to do it because they've won state houses. They've won, they've controlled that. And I think I'm hoping that people are actually seeing the, the results. I didn't really notice it was going on for the same reason. I pay attention to national politics. I was not paying attention to state politics yep. and you don't realize that they're redrawing a map and they're doing it to completely disenfranchise people. The best example I think is is my friend are my friends who live in Austin who have a Republican representative. They're in the clearly the bluest city in Texas. Right. 
right. um, and the more progressive city and everything else. And yet their map has been drawn to the point that, that it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for years, people like you and I have been saying, Hey, your vote matters. It absolutely matters. If everybody turns out and vote, things actually matter. I'm hoping that there's a lot more people who are younger or saying, Holy crap, this matters. This, you know, we'll see again. We're going to be quoting Ron Sider for a long time. <laughs> know. You know. Hopefully by yeah. November 7th or 8th, we're saying, Phew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. The title of this it's next this episode title. is total yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Bonnie Lattimore will not be happy. It's actually out there in the title. She, uh, she seems to have enjoyed our podcast. What my mother is awesome at. She'll read everything I write. She will listen to everything I do, (laughs) but she will tell me when I, my language is just too much. (laughs) Luckily she, uh, she has given up on me. So, you know, I mean, she, she had her chance. She had her chance in Sunday school and, and, and evidently it didn't take. And so she's given up on me.